0: Hey everyone, it's Whitney from whitneydanielle.com and networkinspill.com, and, and I'm excited because it's a new month, y'all. It is a brand new month, and I have been trying to get this particular guest on the show for a while because I have just been in awe of her and all that she does for quite some time. And this is an anticipated episode for me, and I just I can't wait to get into it. So if you have your phone out. Her name is Dr. Ebony, and on Instagram, if you have your phone out or on Twitter, search at Dr. Ebony online, and that's Ebony, E-B-O-N-Y. Dr. Ebony is based in Austin, and I don't remember how we connected. We'll talk about that in a minute, but she's a licensed psychologist. She is a food relationship strategist. She's a speaker. Um, She is... Really, really, really big on the internet, just doing all of the things. She goes live, she posts really amazing reels and content. She speaks on stages and wears the most epic outfits. She's living her best life. And she also has a card deck. I've actually had a few of my podcast guests, I think this year and last year, who have card decks, which I think is so fun. She's the creator of the My Therapy Cards card deck. So, those you can find on her IG bio if you go into Instagram. You click it, you'll find a bunch of stuff from her, just her features, just all the things that she's up to. So you definitely want to follow Dr. Ebony online. But I'm excited because we're going to talk about what a food relationship strategist does, what that even means. We're going to talk about food and our relationship with food as entrepreneurs. I've never talked about this before on the show, so I'm excited. Hopefully you're excited. This will be a fun conversation. Do not forget to share this episode with your friends who eat. I think we all have those, especially your friends who eat, who have businesses and are working really, really hard. So that being said, Dr. Ebony, hello and welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. This is going to be really fun. So do you remember how we connected? Was it from Clubhouse? I can't it remember. may have been
1: Club. I think it was Clubhouse. I know it was on one of these internet platforms, I think it was Clubhouse.
0: See, Clubhouse is such an amazing place. I've met so many really cool and just talented people from Clubhouse. And I don't see you. Are you still on Clubhouse at all? No.
1: Mm-mm. Okay. Clubhouse was... Mm-mm.
0: <laughs> it was a bit much. It, it was, was a, a lot. Much. And I was
1: like, you know what? This is overstimulating. I have got to go back to what I know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. It was it was it was it still is a very live breathing thing and but you know it there was a lot of knowledge that was transferred and shared and a lot of people that you could have connected with that really, I don't know if I would have connected with them on other platforms. It definitely not in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was such an intimate space. It can definitely get rowdy, but it was an intimate space. So yeah, let's talk about what you do because I know people like, okay, Whitney, let's get to it. Like, what is she going to do? What (laughs) is she going to talk about? So tell us how you got into this. I know you said you started off wanting to be in, in the hair industry right? Mm-hmm. And then you shifted. So tell us about that.
1: Well, I, I, I never, let me say this. I wanted to be a cosmetologist only because I grew up in the salon when I was young. So my aunt has um, owned a salon and has done hair all of my life. And so being there with her every Saturday, every day, basically, I was like, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to do hair. But then I just loved school so much. And I knew that I wanted to, like, I'm just a nerd at heart. And I knew that I wanted degrees. So I was like, well, If this if this PhD PhD thing, I'm sorry, doesn't work out, then I'm just going to hair school, and it almost came down to that. To be honest, I went to get my master's. Well, I graduated with my bachelor's. Then I applied to a PhD program and I didn't get in. So I went to get my master's and I did that for two years. I applied to a PhD program again and did not get in. And I said, I'm not taking the GRE over. So. It's about to be up in five years. This is the fifth year. I'm not taking it over again. So I'm going to apply one more time. And if I don't get in, I'm going to hair school. And so I applied to the University of Houston and I got in. And so that's the only reason I did not go to hair school. (laughs) But other than that, I think I would have had my own salon by now. Yeah. Yeah. So going into, you know, becoming a psychologist and doing work around trauma and women's sexuality and working through, you know, regaining your life back after traumatic experiences, like completely disrupts that. One of the things that I found from my own journey while doing all of this is that a lot of us struggle with weight. A lot of us struggle with food. A lot of us struggle with our bodies. And so I went through my own transition where I actually lost a lot of weight and, I said, I knew I always wanted to do business. And so I said, I'm going to do weight loss coaching. Well, when I became a weight loss coach around 2015, it just didn't feel right to me. It felt very oppressive. It felt very exploitive. And it felt like I was still telling women who look like me, your body isn't good enough. You just need to lose weight and then you'll be good enough. And I didn't like that messaging because I didn't like how I received it. And I didn't like to be the messenger of that type of um, information or message. So I said, something's wrong with, I don't want to be just a wellness coach. I don't want to be just a weight loss coach. Something's wrong here. And I think I need to use my expertise as a psychologist to kind of talk more about about food and our bodies. But how can I do that? So I did some soul searching, I guess you could say. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to do food. I'm going to do something around our relationship with food. And it wasn't until I read Sabrina Strings Fearing the Black Body that I was confirmed in my decision to focus solely on our relationship with food from an anti-diet lens because learning that diet culture is super anti-black and oppressive and racist, I was like, I'm so happy that I had the nudge to pivot, but even more happy that I'm disassociating myself from the wellness industry and in that I'm focusing more on the psychological kind of underpinnings of how we show up with food in our relationship and not just something focused on the body and something the body needs to do to be better in society, but just a mere understanding of how do we dismiss or unlearn all the things that we've learned and how do we do that in a way that's relational. So that's how we ended up with food relationship strategist.
0: Wow. That is really really interesting, and I'm glad that it worked out this way for all of us to be able to benefit from that knowledge and that insight. Because yeah, the wellness industry, you know, the diet industry in itself, like the whole health and wellness, they make billions of dollars, mm-hmm. and, and you know they're making a lot of this money, convincing us, especially as women, that we're not we're not good enough, we're not skinny enough, we're not. Um, Our skin isn't clear enough. You know, we don't have curves in the right places. Like our noses aren't the right size, like all the things. And it's exhausting. It's definitely exhausting. So I'm glad that you've stepped into that. And it's cool to see the kind of content you post. So you said that was in 2015. So we're at 2022. The COVID pandemic bit was what, 2020. So Mm -hmm. how have things been going for you with this recently?
1: Well, so one of the things that I learned because I pivoted from actually doing coaching is I learned that I love to do one-on-one therapy as a psychologist, but I absolutely do not like doing one-on-one food relationship strategizing. So one of the things that shifted for me was how I was going to speak about this, ways that I was going to get this message out there. And one of the things that happened during the pandemic was that I, was, I became clear that I only want to teach this. I do not want to coach around this. I do not want to put people through a one-on-one session around changing because change is so long. The change process and unlearning happens in such a long process that I found that clients were getting frustrated. And some of that same diet talk that was coming in session, I mean, it was still there because we're very much inundated, very much conditioned around diet culture every day. And so I was finding that although people like the perspective that I was bringing that we can talk about, they still wanted the wellness coach weight loss coaching. And that was hugely frustrating to me because that's not what I do. And I didn't want people to sign up to spend their money with me, hoping, thinking that they were going to get a result like weight loss and they weren't. So I decided that I only want to speak about it. I only want to speak to organizations about it. And I only want to teach in a group setting kind of webinar educational format around food relationships so that people can get the foundational points and begin to apply those throughout their lives, however they see fit. But I didn't want to do the one-on-one coaching anymore because it always took a turn towards weight loss. And while weight loss is great, while you can do that because it's your body and I advocate for that if that's what you wanna do, that's not what I'm interested in. And I'm not interested in telling people what to put in their bodies. I'm interested in you having agency to know what to do yourself and us figuring out how you can get through some of the things we've learned to find that agency and to figure out how to get settled in your body. So we talk a lot about systemic stuff. We talk a lot about barriers that exist in diet culture. So I think I found that doing that on a in a group setting was a lot more grounding and helpful for folks than just doing it one-on-one. So I figured, you know, this is the way I want to show up. And that feels more authentic to me than doing one-on-one food relationship coaching. So that pivoted for me during the pandemic. And what I found since I got clear on that, I was able to market myself better. So now I'm speaking in Oregon organizations, I'm speaking to therapists around how to change their practices to be more inclusive around this speak. I'm able to, to say this is what I do and this is what I don't want to do. And I was not clear about that before. So as an entrepreneur, gaining clarity around what you offer has been super helpful. And I that was one of the things that happened for me during the pandemic that I'm super grateful for.
0: Yeah. I mean, the more clarity... You have the better that's 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 really important and i love that you're doing the group stuff because i will say when i got into well i guess it was mainly with just business coaching and maybe even sometimes life coaching it seems like something you want to do with one person you know and have that guide but i will say that the more i've grown in just myself and in my business i found that group coaching is is sometimes way more powerful because you get so much more mm-hmm. from other people's experiences and other people's examples and and just the potholes that someone else kind of had to deal with that you didn't and vice versa. There's so much more, I think, give and take when you're in a group setting. So I think that's really cool. Um, obviously, the pandemic has, has shown a light on a lot of different things right, around our businesses and what we can do, what we should be doing, what we want to do, etc. So I like That you're not focusing on weight loss specifically. And I feel like you've made that pretty clear too with your page and what you talk about. So explain to us maybe a little bit more around how the individuals that come to you are really transformed after working with you. You know what I mean?
1: Mm hmm. One of the things I like to do is I have to tell people like even how we got here and why my framework is structured the way that it is and why my page has changed, because. What you see now and what people see now when they're going to come is very different than what it used to be. Like I used to be a before and after picture post in person. I was a bodybuilding person. <laughs> I did all of those things. I was posting bikini pictures and this is how I lost weight. This is what I'm eating. So what y'all are seeing now is my own transformation I and mean, how I got there is something that I want to share with people who are listening. So one of the things that I found when reading Fear in the Black Body is the racist origin of Of fat phobia, right? So back in the day, you know, when race classes were being structured, you know, there was this whole move to make white a bigger class than black. And one of the things that was used to promote that was uh, body type, the beauty industry, beauty standards. And to get more aligned with whiteness also meant that you had to look more white. Therefore, your body had to look a certain type of way and anything that looked similar to a black body was called gross, was called they can't satisfy their appetites, they're insatiable, they're uncontrolled. So basically a lot of negativity around it. And the representation of Black folks was one of of comedy. If you think about Sarah Bartman and her body being on display, it was exploitive. And so when you think about diet culture, beauty industry, the people who were represented were thin white women. Thin white women chiseled white men. And so how do we get more of this less of that. So all of the diets, if you take a moment to stop and think about it, is rooted in how do you get more thin? Like white people, European folks, how do you get that body type? Because that was what was represented in the magazines, the Vogue's, the Cosmo's, The um, runways, like, and this is even more modern, but I'm talking about even way back before then cigarette ads, house cleaning ads, how to be a good wife ads, those things. Think about 1940s, 1950s, even beyond that way back. The people who we saw looked a particular type of way, and those people mainly were white. And so all diet types eat, you know, drink more milk, eat more bread. The people who were shown around these agricultural movements were white people. And so when we talk about wanting our bodies to look a certain type of way, what we're really saying but don't know that we're saying is that we really want our bodies to look more white. Posted something the other day on my page around perfectionism being aligned with whiteness. So when we are trying to be perfect, when we're trying to get things just so and beating ourselves up and using perfectionism as a tool by which we exist, what we're saying is that we really want to be more white aligned. We really want to be more white because that's the model of perfectionism that we've seen. When you think about the beauty industry, you think about skin type, think about colorism that exists within black and brown communities. The colorism exists because of the divide between whiteness and anti-blackness or whiteness and blackness. And then, you know, the standard being anti-black. So when you think about keto, you think about all the things that we now come to know as diets, what we're basically saying is. Black people don't really know how to control themselves, and for you to get control of yourself, which we now call discipline and motivation. What well, we now do that we eat this and you'll be just motivated. Eat this and your body will look just so. Eat this and you'll find the discipline and motivation and energy to actually love on yourself a little bit more because you can't love your body if it's fat. You can only love your body if it's small. So all of these messages that we hear day in and day out, all the things that we see when we walk into clothing stores, sit in airplane seats, go to movie theaters, all the average seatings, non-inclusive dress sizes, pan sizes, seat sizing are all rooted in diet culture. And diet culture being anti-Black, I just found that I couldn't teach that anymore. And so I couldn't even be a part of it anymore in my own body. And so for a period after I started bodybuilding, I just stopped trying to lose weight. I just said, I'm going to allow my body to tell me what it wants, leave what it doesn't, and it's going to take the shape that it wants to take. And I'm going to trust that my body will find its balance when it's ready. And that's one of the things that a lot of us can't do and haven't been told to do because we've been taught how to mistrust our bodies and all of that is rooted in diet culture. So, you know, when we're teaching and I'm talking to folks about that and I'm helping people to understand how I've transformed, a lot of that is shedding the messages of you have to eat all of your food, you're going to waste money, and releasing myself from the trauma of diet culture to say, my body will tell me what I want, it will tell me when it's done, and I can trust that my body will find this balance now. Does that mean that I will you know, might put on weight. I might. And now I have to deal with that reality. Doesn't mean I have to start working out. No. But does it mean that I have to do something I don't like to do? Yes, I don't. I don't have to do that. And that's what I'm giving myself permission. If I don't want to eat kale, I'm not eating kale. But diet culture tells me that kale makes me a good person. Right. Because good food equals good people. Bad food equals bad people. And your worth is connected to what you put in your mouth. If I don't want to do burpees, I'm not doing burpees. If I don't want to work out twice a day, I'm not working out twice a day. I just learned when I started to kind of go through this transformation myself of releasing myself from diet culture, I don't like to run, but diet culture will tell you that running is good for you. And that's the only way that you you can do that. Well, coming from where I'm from, growing up in Mississippi, people didn't run for fun. Black folks didn't. We didn't run for fun, but diet industry tells me that I should become a runner. But then I learned in my body, I don't like running. And so, what are the things that my body likes and is attracted to, and how can those things become measures of health for me? And so, it's all of that transformation that we don't get a chance to talk about that we finally find ourselves we finally find ourselves awakened to. That I absolutely love.
0: Oh, I bet. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really this whole idea of following our intuition to mm-hmm. a degree. And you know, there's a lot of people who believe in intuitive eating who you know absolutely promote doing the types of exercise that fits you because I mean, they've done studies on just when we're consistent, we tend to be more consistent with things that we actually like. So even if someone is telling you to do the, the jogging bit all the time, if you want to look like whatever, Halle Berry, Fulopas, you know, and that's what they're saying. It's like, okay, but if I don't like it, I'm probably not going to do it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really sad. And when you really look at health too, um, it's interesting. My sister's is, is my sister, Elise, is getting, well, she just got her master's, but she's probably going to be getting more degrees and going back to school and doing all the things. But she learns, she's been learning a lot about history and I have as well because of her. And when you read certain books that shed light to this, some of these things you, you start to gather more insight on, like how the health industry and some of the studies they've done just in the past really don't ever even include women. A lot of the studies that they do on everything are or like, I guess they start with mice and then they just go to like straight white men. And that's it. That's, that's the only group that they really ever test stuff for, which is really interesting. And to your point about the keto, I got a book from the library. What was it? Oh, it was on fasting. It was on fasting. And this, first of all, the book was horrible. It was one of the worst books I've ever gotten from the library ever. And I'm reading through it. And when I tell you the last chapter of this book, it was probably four pages maybe five pages, the last chapter addressed women. And it said basically that the entire intermittent fasting bit probably isn't the best for women on most situations and most occasions, depending on where that woman is in her cycle. And I'm just like, what? You wrote an entire book. They wrote an entire book on intermittent fasting. And he went all into this whole like journey that he went on. And it was horrible. And then he, the last two seconds of the book are spent on women. It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. And we were talking about ADHD recently and how ADHD is always just, you know, it's very Caucasian and it's, they only really ever diagnose little white boys. Um, You don't see anybody else really getting diagnosed. The girls aren't, aren't diagnosed is, I don't know the stat, but like not nearly as much and don't, you know, don't even mention people, any person of color, they don't, they just aren't. And it's, Yeah. It's, it's really wild how all of it is is intertwined in that, either it's anti-Blackness or just omission completely.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember growing up, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but I remember growing up and all of the little Black boys in my school had been diagnosed with ADHD because they wouldn't sit down. Now, how, <laughs> how incompetent is that and how dismissive of culture is that. We grew up in in a neighborhood that was a lot of poverty, right? So nobody thought to question, is this trauma? Are these kids just reacting out of trauma? Are they reacting out of scarcity? Nobody thought to ask, ask that. But my experience with ADHD diagnosis was that all little black boys had it. And the main thing to do was to put them on medication so that they would sit down. And so that that managing of black boy behavior is so similar to me of managing the black body let's just give them something that would make them sit down and that to me is one of the issues I take with mental health altogether but that's a that's a whole nother episode <laughs> but I'm, it, is. it makes it me is. think of that when you said the ADHD diagnosis
0: mm. Yeah, and and I want to talk way more about ADHD in the future that's that's definitely going to be on my agenda just because mm-hmm. I was diagnosed so late in life and I' like finding out completely blew my mind finding out my dad had it completely or has it completely just it, it's mind-boggling just mm-hmm. yeah but it's it is interesting I think all of this is but I love the work that you're doing around you know th- this there is a whole phenomenon, I guess you could call it, or culture shift around body positivity. And I'm really loving it. And I know a lot of people, it is what it is. It's going to make people upset, right? This whole having to be inclusive bit, right? Having to acknowledge people as human beings, even if they don't look like Jessica Simpson, or, you know what I mean? They're not posing in this, they're not showing up. And their physical body as this quote unquote ideal persona shape size whatever you want to call it. I love the body positivity that's we're seeing more of. Um, it's not a fad or a phase. I'm really excited about revolutionizing this as a culture, and then it becoming much bigger. When you read, do you remember that book? The body is not the apology, or my body is mm-hmm, not an apology. Mm-hmm. That yes. book. I think her first name is Sonia. Sonia, and my is, name. Mm-hmm. yes absolutely incredible and it's not a big book y'all like the book is super short right it's not a dense mm-hmm. super intensive read but it was liberating for so many people to read through even if you just kind of pick a few chapters and then watching lizzo on her show watch out for the big girls that show to me was really powerful really powerful as we see this and the relationship with food comes up right um there's another woman, Jessamine, she's a a yogi. She does the yogi. I got her book. I think I have a couple of her books. Her name is, I think it's Jessamyn Jones. I'll put it in the show notes. Y'all definitely check the show notes. We're going to be dropping some books today. It's fine. Lots of good books, but her book talks a lot about that too. And her relationship with food. And like you were saying, trauma and alcoholism, I believe all of these things affecting how she's eating was really, really interesting, but we all have a story. So when you're working with people and when you're working with your clients in group settings and whatnot, how do you sort of look at the individual and and say, okay, well, you have this going on and this is maybe what's affecting, how does that process work maybe behind the scenes?
1: Mm -hmm. So we're talking about how do we get here? How do we get here? So a historical perspective. So it it feels a lot like just taking a person's history. How do we get here? What are your thoughts around your body? What are your thoughts around food? What are your earlier food messages? We spend a lot of time talking about food messaging because a lot of us don't know that those messages are still running our relationship with food now. So if you think about the messages like, eat all of your food, or I was told, you know, so many of us were told, if you don't eat all of your food, then kids in Africa are starving or they're going to starve. How are those things still running your relationship with food and running your family dynamics if you have children or running the ways that you tell little ones how to show up with food themselves. Also, how does that look when you go to restaurants and you know you're full, but you're not gonna leave food? You're gonna always take a to-go box. What is that anxiety that comes up when you can't take a to-go box or when you leave your food, right? I'm gonna waste money and the things that we tell ourselves and the thoughts that are around a lot of the behaviors that we have when it comes to food. Where do those come from? When you're talking to yourself about food now, whose voice do you hear? Whose voice is that? Because a lot of the messaging are going to create the mindsets that we have. Those are going to dictate the guilt that we feel. That's going to create the pattern of apologies that we have about our bodies. That's going to shape the ways that we show up with our girlfriends and the conversations that are centered around bodies, weight loss. Oh, look at me. Look at my stomach. What diet are you on now? The commenting on people's bodies, the judgments that we have, the comparisons that we have. A lot of those earlier messages are what is driving and creating and reinforcing a lot of these thoughts and behaviors. So we start there. From there, we go on to talk about what are your habits, the things that you're doing just habitually. The things that you now have on autopilot that you don't even recognize that you're doing. How do we disrupt those cycles? How do we disrupt what is happening? Then we go on to talk about how to replace just, um, you know, some of us have coping skills centered around just food. How do we diversify those coping skills? Because coping with food is not bad. But how do we diversify so it's not the only thing that we're dependent on? It's not the only thing that we do because doing any of one thing is exhaustive and it actually creates more problems when that's the only thing that we have to go to. So how do we diversify coping skills? How do we release ourselves from our morals, our judgments about types of food that we eat? Why is it that you are a bad person when you eat rice, but you are a good person when you eat quinoa? Why is it that you're a bad person when you eat fries, but you're a good person when you eat fried zucchini. Like let's think about that. Let's think about the ways that we've also lost culture in our, you know, cycles of dieting. Let's talk about the ways that diet culture has ripped these things from us. So a large part of the work that we do, I would say probably the first 30 to 60 days is just sitting in some truths and realizing that we've been lied to. A bunch and how do we begin to kind of unlearn from that standpoint? Then the next phase is us doing some things. So there are some things that I, you know, have people do is go to a restaurant, leave the food. Journal what comes up for you. Go, you know, leave the restaurant mad because we need to learn how to sit with those emotions. We need to learn that we will be okay. We need to move more out of scarcity and realize that abundance is how we correct our relationship with food because scarcity draws in survival mode functioning. So how do we actually learn to just be and ground ourselves? But a lot of that work also means that some people find out that they need to be in therapy for trauma and that they need to work through trauma before working through their relationship with food because trauma actually disrupts your ability to listen to your body many times. So some people can't really tell when they're full because they don't trust their bodies. Trauma has led them to a place where listening to their bodies is not safe. So what does that feel like now? And maybe doing therapy, coming back to this. So we're doing a lot of psychoeducation, a lot of exploring, which is why I call it strategizing, because one method is not going to fit every person. And it may take us to course correct, come back and shift, shift some things around, come back to it and, you know, play with some things, you know, work out some things. So that's what it looks like behind the scenes. And a large part of this is values driven. What's important to you and how far off of that have you been lately? And what are the things we can do to get you more aligned? I'm a foodie. I love to travel. I love to experience culture through food. But if I'm restricting myself for the sake of getting into a different pant size or restricting myself for the sake of actually needing to look a certain way or get my clothes to fit a certain way, then I need to figure out what's my middle path and how can I make that more values-driven? Because values-driven will lead me not to be as restrictive. Values-driven will say, I told myself no, I told myself no too many times, it's time to say yes. Values driven can also say, I told myself yes too much, I need to say no. So what are the things that guide me? What are my anchor points? And how can I use those to determine how I wanna show up? So we do a values assessment at the beginning of our work together. What's important to you? So that when you come in and you say, oh, you know, Dr. Ebony, I didn't really eat today because I was worried about calories. And you told me that being in community with other folks, being a foodie traveling was important to you. So how does that align with your values? And it's up to you to, t- to determine that doesn't really align. So how do I find my way back here? What does that actually look like in helping yourself find balance there instead of going by rules that somebody else set for you that may not fit within your life and lifestyle?
0: Yeah, that makes complete sense. The values bit, the trauma bit, what we're taught. Uh, we're taught a lot of things about food. Like you were saying, even before with the you know there are starving children and, and not leaving leftovers, and not wasting and not trusting your body, all these different things I think a lot of us have experienced or heard or know someone who has. So let me ask you this, cause I wanna dive deeper into this, but l- let me ask you this from your perspective and keep in mind, right? I don't know a ton about this. This is just me asking you from just off the top of my head. So when it comes to like some of these eating disorders, right, when the trauma and when the things start to snowball and escalate, and it gets to a point where people maybe are binging, we hear a lot of this, this binge, you know, it's just been a hot word. You know, we binge things on Netflix. I personally don't love the term, but a lot of people use it. And then there are people who do have binge eating disorders. So we have that, we have anorexia, we have bulimia. And these are things that we hear about. And I remember growing up, my mom was very cautious. She's like, look, look, you're hanging around. We were military, so we were always in a different place. But when we were in certain areas, it was okay. We need to make sure we're watching because her friends may be doing some of this stuff. And it seemed like a very white thing. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that maybe you see it a lot? Maybe you don't. I'm very, very curious.
1: Yeah. So eating disorders, any disorder, you know, we talk about it being on a spectrum, just like anxiety. It doesn't become a disorder until it significantly disrupts your day to day life. So many people have disordered eating patterns, disordered eating behaviors, disorder movement, exercise behaviors, but not actually an eating disorder or body dysmorphia. Right. So when you think about it, just think about it, a spectrum. Many of us are, are eating, dis, you know, disordered eating end, on the disordered eating end of things. It becomes an eating disorder when folks are putting their health in danger. It becomes an eating disorder when it's become a severe and significant attempt to regulate themselves because that's what eating disorders are about. They're about regulation. They are about controlling. They're about manipulating. And so a lot of people find that this is the one thing that they have control over when nothing else in their lives seems to be under their control. So the way in which we go about it could just simply be what we have access to. Some people have access to learned behaviors such as restriction. Some people have access to learned behaviors that overcompensation. So it really is a, if you think about anxiety and the way that many of us cope with anxiety, some of us cope with anxiety through fidgeting. Some of us cope with anxiety through chronic list making. Some of us cope with anxiety through talking or What's the thing? Validate, seeking out validation from other folks, calling all, everybody asking them is what they did was right. Some people deal with anxiety through comparison. So, eating disorder is the same way. What is the mode by which people are dealing with this thing? Some people purge, some people binge, some people restrict, right? And binging is really an overcompensation or a rebound a lot of times of severe, severe restriction, whether that's in thought or whether that's in behavior. So I tell people all the time, if you tell yourself you can't have something, the other side of that, the boomerang of that is going to be that when you do have access to it, you're going to overcompensate. You're going to overindulge. And that's what we see a lot of times with people who have bulimia. With restriction, a lot of people are just very afraid, almost have a gag reflex to eating because they become so fearful of calories and the fear is rooted in being fat, fat being rooted in being outcast, not being able to control or not being good enough or not being seen as valuable or worthy. So it really just depends on the behaviors that you picked up and the things that you've learned and what you have access to. Some people do both. Some people have become really good restrictors and then they binge as well. So people become compulsive exercisers. People work out to overcompensate. People use laxatives, all of those things. So some of it's picked up through peers. Some of it's picked up by what they see their moms do. Some of it's just picked up by what our personalities gravitate towards. I'm not, a, I'm not a person. I'll just use myself. For example, I'm not a person who throws up. I can't stand it. So while I had disordered, eating behaviors, I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I would have been the severe restricted type. Does that make sense? I would have restricted my food versus thrown up because I can go without and I can deny myself versus eating something and then throwing up Mm because I just did not like the way that made me feel no matter how obsessed I was with my weight.
0: Yeah. No, me either. I'm with you. Uh, 1000%, 1000%. And actually I remember, this is a quick story and then we're going to get into some some other stuff. But when I was younger, I remember when you talked earlier just now about having control. That brought up a memory when I was little. We had moved from it was a cross-country move. We had moved from New York State down to San Antonio, Texas. And this was before social media and like cell phones. So like, you know, there was no way for me to hold on to these friendships I had. And I was super bummed, very upset. And I knew I could one, piss my parents off, two, get attention. And three, I could control it. And so I I restricted what I ate. And I was probably God, grade? I think the fourth grade, I want to say, I was very young, like third, fourth grade. And I knew I, I knew what I ate mattered because I saw my parents hawking over it so much. They're always like, yeah, you're going to eat this, you got going to eat that. I'm like, okay, I see what you're saying, but here's what I'm going to do. And it became a thing. And I created this thing as a kid because I wanted control. And I wanted to have something that Because, you know, when you feel like your whole world is going upside down and you're having to move and moving is very traumatic, you know, when you're a kid on on some occasions. And that was really interesting. So I can I can 100 percent see how that could contribute right to a full blown eating. So that makes perfect sense. And eventually for me, I just decided I was hungry one day, Mm -hmm. um, but they had me on a regimen like I was on a very strict routine. They had me documenting everything I ate. We tried to play games to get me to eat. There were all these things that they tried to do to improve my relationship with food. And obviously, once I got settled, I think that had a bit to do with it, too. Once I got settled in my new surroundings and I started to feel a little bit more grounded, then things started and safe. Things shifted. But I remember that was a really I'm sure my parents were still not happy about the way that I handled that. But, you know, when you're a kid, there's only so much, you know, your young mind things to do. And so, yeah, Hey, can we take a pause real quick? I just want to let y'all know this is exclusive and time sensitive. If you're hearing this, there's a really good chance that either I have a spot open or I have a spot opening on my one-on-one program that I offer. So I only do four slots at a time because this is like the most intense, thorough, intimate way to work with me ever. This is my creme de la creme, like for bad bitches only. This is for solopreneurs who have a nine to five, who work in corporate, who have some sort of job that they are doing and that they're doing really well, but who also have a side hustle or a business that they are running on the side and they want to build and streamline their goals towards. A lot of us have strategy. A lot of us have plans here and there, but most of us don't have accountability. A lot of us don't have a support system that's solid and the rest of us aren't organized and have strong boundaries, have routines, like all of that. So I'm going to help you get it all together. This is a three-month intensive one-on-one coaching program where you have full access to me via Voxer. We have seven seven one-on-one calls with each other throughout the three months. And you get routines, you get customized affirmations and audios and all kinds of things to help you succeed. So check out the link. It's in the show notes. It's also on my website, whitneydanielle.com. If you have questions, DM me, send me an audio note, let me know. If you know someone who needs to get their shit together in this manner, send me their information. I will totally hook you up for the referral. That's it. That's all I wanted to say. Let's get back to the episode. So when we talk about this in like a young version of ourselves, right? Versus, because sometimes it starts, I think sometimes very young with these habits that we form and they've done studies on that, right? When Mm -hmm. we're little, the things that we pick up and absorb, right? We've had folks, several people on the show this year talking about money and how those money beliefs, they they get ingrained in us mm-hmm. when we're very, very little. So I'm assuming food is the same way. But when we get older, and we are working, I find a lot of us have very negative, I would say a lot of us have even worse relationship with food, now that we're like, outside of the eating disorder realm, right? We have just really tainted sort of bad experiences with food because of the wellness industry pushing stuff on us all the time. And then the doctor is telling you that you're overweight and you're on the scale of your BMI is this, this and this, and, mm-hmm. and you're just getting bombarded. And then you're busy. You're trying to work. Inflation is real. And so there is really no time to eat and who wants to meal prep. Right. And, and so these things are, as adults, we're constantly dealing with. So how do you speak to those sort of overwhelmed folks?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're right. You named all the things. And I'm glad that you made the distinction between kind of like when you're young, what your mind does, because it's what eating disorders are way more nuanced than we kind of talked about it simplistically here. I just want folks to understand that, that there are so many other things that go into eating disorders. But as adults, we still are trying to find a balance. We still are trying to find Control. So, as much as that's something that young people do with young brains, it's something that we do as adults. How do we juggle everything? And we learn to put everybody else and everything else above ourselves. So, one of the first things that go is self care. One of the first things that go is prioritizing yourself. So, I'll make sure the kids are at school. I'll make sure this email is sent. I'll make sure this funnel is set up. I'll make sure this reel is made. But I'll kind of come back to feeding myself later. Many of us have not learned earlier how to take care of ourselves and put ourselves first. So that's not a skill or thought process that we carry over into adulthood. It's something that we've learned to let play, let let kind of go. We've seen our parents do it. You know, they they take care of everybody else. They take care of the church. They take care of family members. They do all the things, PTA, all the things. So we learn to do the same thing. So if you're talking about how to be an adult who prioritizes themselves, this is something that has to be taught and paid attention to early. But for those people who haven't learned, we start there. We start with where do you fall on your list of priorities? That's one of the questions in the therapy cards. Where do you fall on your list of priorities? What does it say about yourself when you put yourself first? Is there guilt? Is there shame? And how does this actually show up when you're feeding yourself? Oh, I just kind of eat whatever's convenient or I just kind of eat whatever I have a taste for, or I just kind of, I kind of go get the the next thing that I that I have in, in storage or I have near me, or I make sure everybody else is eating and then I'll eat last. So we're talking about ways that we're showing up even with ourselves through feeding. And one of the things I used to talk to people about is, do, would we do that with children? Would we wait to feed babies? Would we wait to feed children? No. So why are we waiting to feed ourselves? So no matter how overwhelmed we are, no matter how stressed we are, We've got to figure out how to place ourselves as a priority simply when it comes to feeding. Because feeding ourselves and how we feed ourselves is a sign of how we care for ourselves. It's a sign of what's priority to us. And why are we forgetting to feed ourselves? Why are we forgetting to nourish our bodies? You know, And so I think that that's a testament to how overwhelmed and how much we're juggling. If you're forgetting to feed yourself, we have problems. And this is one of the things we talk about. We have a problem if you're forgetting that. And I'm not talking about one time here, one time here, chronically forgetting that. So we address that. What is, how have you created and shaped your life in a way that you become last? And so in that, how do we not go on the side of perfectionism? Because nobody wants to, people, most people don't want to meal prep. It takes too much time. And so really helping people understand that it doesn't have to go from zero to 100. It doesn't mean that you have to meal prep. It doesn't mean that you have to have a meal planned out every day of the week, but that feeding yourself, getting something is at the top of your list as much as getting sleep is, as much as bathing yourself is. So how do we get your basic needs met? I don't know if y'all are, you know, if your listeners are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but at the very base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is shelter, food, water, security, safety. Many of us are trying to operate at the tip top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is self-actualization. That's where the business development comes. That's where the entrepreneurship comes. That's where the highest self and self, you know, realizing who you are, self-awareness, self-care comes. Well, if your base isn't secured, then all that you're putting into the self-actualizing phase actually is faulty. It's not it's not going to be consistent. So how do we get your base secured is the work that we do so that you can actually self-actualize in a way that's sustainable and that you're not always trying to recreate this, this connection with your highest self, this connection with your inner self doing this inner work. So we work on that because those those foundational pieces are super important. If our if our basic needs are met, our clarity is off. If our basic needs are met, then our stability, just in and of ourselves are off. So we address a lot of those things that people don't even think are important when they're just trying to juggle the the nuances of life.
0: It is frustrating. I think when we talk about making time, prioritizing ourselves, self-care, it's interesting how self-care tends to come up so often in so many different conversations around adulting. Because you're right, we wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, for a lot of us who are dog mom, dog parents, dog dads, Dog aunties, whatever, right? You, you're, you have some kind of a pet. You're, you may be watching. You may be taking care of whatever. We would never. And most of, I don't think anybody would ever. Most people. I'm not going to say anybody. Most of us are not going to be out here not feeding our dogs, right. right, or our cats, or, you know what I mean, our nephews. We're, not, we're not going to not feed those around us. And it's actually interesting because culturally, right, we tend to have so many things that we do that is around food. Mm-hmm. And giving mm-hmm. and nurturing, that's like a love language to a lot of people. And it's interesting to me, though, that as this, and they've, there are several documentaries, y'all, on Netflix that you can watch. You can go down this long rabbit hole of learning about food and how we got to where we are today with GMOs and fast food and convenient packaging, this, this, and this, chemicals there and there. And it is really sad, but a lot of it was because of the way that the country was going with, with Technology with change, with jobs, change, all of these things happening, and it's really unfortunate. And so here we are today. You know, we are technologically advanced beings. Most of us, especially with the pandemic and all, working from home, and I think that helped some folks, but I definitely know it did not help others. I think, Doctor Ebony, I don't know if you know this. I saw this this uh, stat recently. I don't even remember where I saw it, but it talked about how during the pandemic, like record sales, there were. More sales for ice cream than like deodorant for mm-hmm. a very long period. Did you hear that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to me, right? And it's random. And of course, like we can laugh about it because, okay. But it was still kind of shocking that they had they had been able to measure this and then say it. And And I think for us as entrepreneurs, whether we're dealing with the pandemic or not, whether we work from home or not, whether we have a team, Or not, whether we're married or not or whatever, it is very important for us to make that time and to prioritize ourselves. Um, So for those entrepreneurs out there who really do struggle with that, and maybe it's because of the way they grew up. Maybe it's because they legitimately forget. I know a lot of people with ADHD, the time blindness, we look up and it's like 7 p.m. We're like, oh Mm -hmm. shit. Or you're taking medication that suppresses your appetite, or you're drinking coffee that maybe suppresses your appetite or whatever. Or you're literally just not focusing or you're not listening to your body. What do you tell those folks? And how to, like, what's the first maybe step or two to get into the right direction for bettering how they treat themselves?
1: Yeah. So, one of the things, you know, I would tell them is we, especially as entrepreneurs, a lot of us aren't taught that building a sustainable business means that we're here to run it. So, How long are you going to be here in your business if you're not taking care of yourself? And that doesn't mean that you have to be skinny or you have to be at the gym and have a gym membership or you have to be eating healthy in ways that diet culture says it. But how are you making sure that you're sustained for your business for the long haul, the the preventing burnout, preventing fatigue, talking about clarity, business ideas, how do you make sure that you're constantly creating? How do you make sure that your mind is clear and in a space to do that? You really can't do that if you're not taking care of yourself. One of, one of the things I would say is, what does your business plan consist of? And are you included? Have you rolled rest, restoration and repair of yourself into your business plan? What does that look like? And if they have not, one of the things I would say is think about where you fit into your business plan. One of the books that I read was called A Pathway to Wealth, and one of the things that she said she did every morning was had a meeting with the CSO. She said, I have a day full of meetings with everybody else. I took a moment to have a meeting with my chief spiritual officer. You can call it God. You can call it spirit. You can call it the universe, whatever. But I took a minute to have a conversation to put some things out there as I wanted to see them manifest in my life. Before I went off and helped somebody else build their business, or before I went off and even made another step in my own business, I wanted to make sure that my needs were heard, that I was caring for myself in my business. And that has absolutely stuck with me because we cannot run a sustainable business if we are not here. And how are you making sure that your business is able to run is making sure that you're healthy enough to, to run it. And that means mind, body, emotions, mentally, mentally. All of that. Am I feeding myself or am I denying myself for the sake of getting into some pants? Am I hungry? Is my stomach talking to me? Am I grounded? So one of the things I would say in addition to asking yourself, are you built into your business plan? Is how grounded are you day to day? Many of us are operating still in survival mode. I know for me for a very long time, I was trying to outchase and outrun poverty. I never want to experience what I experienced when I was young. I never want the uncertainty of when I was young. I never want that 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 thought of this could be wiped away at any time. So I built a business out of survival mode. But I can't sustain that in survival mode. So how grounded am I? How much time do I spend getting grounded? How much time do I spend my spend reminding myself that I've created the safety net for myself and I don't have to keep functioning like this. Because when I can slow down survival mode, then I can focus on myself and what I need. Do I need to eat? Yep, because That email, if I don't send it, my business is not going to shut down. But survival mode tells me that it is. So I can eat. I can drink this coffee and and, and love it. I don't have to rush. I don't have to eat a toast as I'm walking out the door. I don't have to eat a toast as I'm running to the next appointment. But how can I actually sit down, eat, and enjoy my food and have joy around it versus I'm just going to eat this because this is what this meal plan called for. I don't really like it, but I'm going to eat it anyway. All of that survival mode functioning. I'm going to eat what somebody else told me I need to eat. But how can I actually enjoy this and and how grounded am I to do so? So I would first tell people, get grounded. If that means doing some breath work when you wake up, if that means doing some journaling, get grounded. Figure out how to prioritize yourself and go from there. We don't need any more rules than the ones that have been given to us. If you just look back through history, we have enough diet rules to last us another lifetime. You don't need to go pick up a gallon water jug and drink a gallon of water a day. You don't need to go buy all the fruit and veggies. Just start with where you are and say, what is my body asking me for now? What do I need now? If you need something sweet, go get something sweet. If you need something veggie that's that's leafy, go get something leafy. and And work through that shame and guilt that comes up. Like even if you're hearing me talk about this, notice any thoughts that come up that say, oh, but you just want me to eat anything or that's going to make me fat. Notice that because that's your body reacting to the messages that has been implanted and embedded. If you think that eating a cookie or eating a bag of chips is a thing that's going to be your demise, that's diet culture. So think about those things and think about what you've been taught and Fed. And I know somebody's probably going to say, well, obesity is the number one killer of black folks. Scarcity, poverty, systemic issues, food deserts are the number one killer of black folks. Systems that have created poverty and scarcity in our communities are the reasons that folks show up and have relationships with food in the ways that they do. So leave it up to us, minus the trauma. Our bodies will tell us what we want. It'll tell us what we don't want. But given all of those other issues that's been wiped away from us, we've forgotten how to listen to our bodies and that's what we need to do. So that's why the grounding, that's why the trauma work, that's why the breathing, that's why the slowing down is important. Instead of the re- the reinforcing and repeating of rhetoric like, but we're going to die of obesity, that scarcity and survival mode, fear antics that don't get us any further than they have already. And you can see that in the literature. So those are the places I would tell people to start and having those kinds of conversations.
0: No, that's awesome. And I think for the people who you know, feel some type of way that maybe they think they are listening, but that because they're in a food desert, because they don't have control over certain circumstances or they feel like they don't, there's there's that impediment, there's that gap between where they are versus where they want to be. And I will say that there are small things that can be done that add up. And that's the one thing that I try to tell myself is because you can really have, and bear with me, you can really have access to all of the things, right? Let's say, for example, in this food desert, there was a store that was nearby and it wasn't a food desert you can have access to all of that and still be making poor decisions in my opinion, right? Or making decisions based off of emotion or Mm -hmm. hormones or um, time and convenience. There's so many reasons why we make the decisions that we make. And sometimes even without, we know this, right? We know this, even with all of the options, even all the options, having a Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, Wegmans, all within walking distance, you can still make really poor decisions and not Mm -hmm. listen to your body. So making to me, I give myself permission to make small decisions that eventually add up. And that has been what has helped me in my food, just dealing with food, dealing with, and not even really looking at it from dealing with it, but just sort of experiencing it and being able to enjoy the good stuff. I watched a a video today, this Ayurvedic doctor talked about how we, we don't need to eat fried potatoes and how when, when the potatoes get browned um, it, it's known to like present this carcinogenic thing that's like cancer causing and blah, blah, blah. And you know, she's basically like, don't eat French fries. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you're like, okay. And she gives you 80 other ways to eat the potatoes. But all you can think about is the fact that she said no French fries. And you're like, but what about Chick-fil-A? And it's, it, it's, it's really unfortunate how, at least in my experience, when you're online and you're following these food folks and People who are in the wellness or or doctors, right? I follow um, like Mark Hyman; he's one of my faves. There's a bunch of people, but they're always saying different sort of conflicting things. I have one guy I follow; he's like, "Don't eat kale; it does blah blah blah." And then the Ayurvedic doctors are like, "Well, don't mix fruits and veggies because it <laughs> produces gas, and this is and this." And then, but it like it tastes really good, and and everyone's saying, "Oh, and then don't eat brown rice now because there's arsenic in it, and you know you can only eat white." But then everybody was saying, "Don't eat white rice because you should be eating." brown rice. And it's very, very, very frustrating. So let's talk about that for a second before we wrap up. What do you have to say
1: about that? Exactly what you just said. So many people do not realize how conflicting the information is in the literature. And it really just depends on people's theoretical framework. And the information is always debatable. It's subjective. And there's not a lot of objective information out there. And I think this is what people need to understand is that if it were science, if it were something that were true all the time as diet culture tried to make it be, we wouldn't have this much debate. We don't have that much debate in biological stuff, right? We don't have that much uh, back and forth size or theoretical orientations depicting or influencing the way people think about things or the, the research that is done or the arguments that are being made. Some truths are just that, and that's truth. Unfortunately, a lot of that cannot be said for diet culture. And the body is so unique that what what is helpful for one body type is not going to be helpful for the next I actually don't like kale. Kale makes me bloated. But for somebody else, kale is actually taste, it tastes really good and it does wonders for their bodies. So you can't make a blanket statement like don't eat rice, don't eat brown rice, don't eat potatoes, don't eat kale, don't drink that much water, don't drink cold water. And because our minds need something to latch onto, it just doesn't make a lot of sense for us. And this is why we're confused. Because the absoluteness of it all is confusing because it doesn't fit for everybody, Room temperature water works great for me. But if I gravitated towards people who said only drink this type of water at this temperature and it has to be alkaline, I would be stir crazy. So I go with what my body tells me. I go with what the feedback that my body gives me. Bell peppers make my body bloat. Kale makes me bloat. So I go with what my body says not what a rule says. And you have to do that. But the only way you can do that is actually to listen to your body. I'll give you another example, like alcohol. I love I love cocktails. I love wine, love champagne. But like, if tonight I wanted to have a glass of champagne, one of the things I have to think about is how has my sleep been over the past couple of nights? And I realized that my sleep has been really choppy. And if I drink champagne tonight, my sleep is going to be choppy and I want to sleep through the night. So that drives whether or not I have champagne, not the calories, not what somebody tells me is going to do for my intestines or any of that stuff. But how is it going to help me sleep? Because that's the outcome that I'm focused on. That's the thing that I'm driving, using as an anchor to drive. So I value sleep. I value rest. I value restoration. Those are my guiding points. So that is what I would tell people. Think about your guiding points. What are your health outcomes? You remember, I can't remember MTV. It was MTV. Uh, girl, I think her name was Ay- uh, Ayana or something like that. I can't remember her name, but she was completely vegan for a number, number, number of years. And she said that she followed the whole veganism. Don't eat this, drink this type of water, only eat veggies because that's what diet culture tells you to do, right? And she developed breast cancer. So she said, one of the things that I wish I had done was slow down, calm down, and not be so driven by fear of what I was hearing was going to happen to my body because I did all the right things and I developed breast cancer still. So these are the things that I need people to understand is if we're focusing on one piece of information, using that to make a blanket statement, we're potentially causing ourselves more harm than good, creating more problems for ourselves. So helping yourself get back. Maybe you could do some work with the therapist or nutritionist around how do I take my values Help, the, help me find balance and actually approach food from that way. I don't want to feel guilty. I want to feel joy. I want to still eat things that I enjoy. So what does that look like for me versus what does this plan say? What does this plan say? And your only outcome being what the scale says back to you, because that can be detrimental in and of itself.
0: Yep, absolutely. No, that's a really good point. I loved everything that you just said. Um, and I love that you were you were kind of talking about pillars and these guiding points is to you know thinking back to that and i think it's important like sort of anchors i think for me that's the word i like for my my brain is anchors things i can come back to that are rooted and grounded into something that's important to me so to your point about the champagne if sometimes we can be a bit as ADHDers, we can be a bit impulsive. And I guess I didn't really realize that until I did. And then I was like, okay, yeah, I definitely see this. This is a problem. You can just be impulsive and you don't always think to think about stuff like that. And that's where it's like, you do have to slow down. You have to slow down. And then you have to have those guiding points in, the, in to, to begin with, right? It's easier when you have a dog or when you have somebody that's like that you have to care for, right? That's going to bring you back. That's going to anchor you back. I can't go out all night. I can't go on a trip to Thailand Mm -hmm. tomorrow because I have to make sure I have childcare for my tug, right? Same thing for anybody else. We have these responsibilities. And so remembering that and tuning back into that, my mom always said, Whitney, you need to listen to your body because I would get headaches as a kid all the time. Listen to your body, listen to your body. I'm like, mom, what are you talking about? And eventually it hit me and I was like, Oh, oh, okay. Wait. So you mean, you mean when I feel thirsty and there's something in my head screaming to drink water, I should listen to that and then go drink the water. Oh, okay. So don't ignore that. Keep playing and then be upset later when I have a headache. Got it. Got it. Got mm-hmm. it. And it took me a very long time to understand that. But once I did, it was really, really powerful because guess what? I would have less headaches. Now, some of that was biological, hereditary, the migraine bit, super fun, but at least I could listen to what was going on more clearly than sort of winging it. And that is incredibly powerful. I mean, I do also want to reiterate a point that you said, because I feel like as entrepreneurs, a lot of us don't do this, is taking care of ourselves and prioritizing our health, because when we are fueled properly, we can operate at a higher capacity. You just can't. And it's funny. There's a comedian that made a joke. that were like, why are people who are fit always in the gym? Like, you already did it. Like, congratulations. (laughs) Why are you still here? And it's, you know, a lot of it is because they feel good. They feel good. It makes them feel good. There are studies, I'm sure tons of studies that have been done um, on the effects of working out. And so doing something that makes you feel good produces a better outcome in how you behave. And I have been trying to do that biohacking. We could do a whole episode. If you want to come back and do a whole mm-hmm. episode on biohacking, I would love to do that because all I ever hear are straight white guys talking about biohacking. I never hear anybody else talking about it. And I find it really, really interesting. If you do you talk about it at all or we have like random
1: I'm gonna have to read up on it when I when I'm done with this, but <laughs>
0: Okay. I would love to before. If it's, though. Yeah, if it interests you, I would love to have you come back and talk about it. But basically these guys and I don't know the history of it, it too, too much, but I just remember there are these guys who were trying to hack into their system, their bodily functions and whatnot to operate better and more efficiently. So they were kind of like with the whole nootropics conversation, but making sure they were eating certain things like um, Jim Quick, I believe. He's the guy that, that helps people speed read. He's really big on brain health. Mm-hmm. Um, he was mm-hmm. dyslexic and had all these issues um, growing up as a kid. And he was able to shift that. And just like, now he's like insane with how he teaches and how he helps people, but he has a lot of work on the brain. And I find it interesting because they've done studies on all this. Like what helps you to perform better? A lot of us as entrepreneurs want to perform better. We want more energy. We want sustained energy. We want to also respect, and I've had people on the show talking about napping and we want to take breaks too. But this whole idea of how can we fuel ourselves in a way that individually we can operate to the highest capability that we can, whatever that looks like that day, whatever that looks like that season. And I love this idea. So definitely. And if anybody listening knows anything about biohacking, please reach out, let me know. I only ever see my guys talking about it. So I'd love to have that specific conversation of how we can tap into really fueling our bodies in ways that are going to help us perform really well as busy, motivated juggling different things and tasks, types of entrepreneurs. So yeah,
1: we'll follow up. On I then. love that. I love that. And one of the things I think we have to do, and I, and I just want to say this quick aside, is I think we have to disconnect the gym being for weight loss. Cause I think that that is intimidating for folks. And just understanding that if the, if we had been taught that the gym was for exactly what you just explained to help us function better, we will see a lot more people utilizing the gym for that. But when we talk about gym, a lot of people associate with weight loss and it's just overwhelming and triggering. And so people don't even want to go there. So, you know, I think that unlearning what the gym is for, unlearning what exercise is for could be super helpful for folks. And understanding that exercise is just, you know, one of the outcomes is that you feel better, you function better, you any type of movement. You just have better brain, brain functioning and that it doesn't have to be insanity. It doesn't have to be Um, These hardcore workouts that it can literally just be moving in ways that make you feel good, that will help your brain function better, help you have more clarity. So I think part of, you know, getting back to that point is helping us unlearn and, and disconnect some of these things we've been taught around, you know, what certain things mean and the function of certain things like the gym.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like we could definitely keep talking about this for another half an hour. This is I feel like we're just starting to get warmed up and, and we, we really could. I know we could, but we're trying to keep it to, you know, digestible, pun intended level of of audio here. So we'll have a part two at some point. We'll get Dr. Ebony on the show soon mm-hmm. to have to please come back and we'll keep talking about this. But I, I think you gave so many great tips, so many gems, so many things for people to to think on. And that's why I want people to share this with their friends, especially even people in corporate need to hear this because the message is pretty clear. And it's, it's, I think it's 1000% cross, you know, industry, whatever, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's across the platform of, of people as, as adults, as individuals, we have to do a better job. Most of us need to do a better job at taking care of ourselves with the rest, with the hydration. And I know it gets old. I see the posts all the time, y'all. OK, I get it. I literally saw an article today or yesterday that was like, maybe these things, maybe these are things that you're doing and, and this is why you're not losing weight. And it's like the same four things, not getting enough sleep, not drinking enough water, stressing out, you know, and I'm like, OK, girl, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was so insightful and so helpful because, you know, only everyone is talking about the same thing. Being able to shift from seeing stuff like that to things that are more, you know, helpful right? That are more relevant to us that Absolutely. tap into, like you were saying, that's, it's not about weight loss. It's about, I want to feel good, right? Mm-hmm. I want to feel better. I want to be able to perform at my top. Um, and, and then the last thing I'll say is another book that really changed the game for me when it came to food and our relationships with food is the um, In the Flow book by Elisa Vitti. I think her whole thing with cycle syncing just kind of blew my mind. And I think it's worth a read for anybody who has a cycle. I, I really love that she talks about how you know men have this circadian rhythm and how women it' just different and and the the menstrual cycle that we go through right those four phases really affects how we operate and she's not the only one who's talked about this there have been other people but that really changed the game for me and how I think about food because they literally say that there are certain foods that you should eat during certain times of the month how crazy is that i I literally learned that like, A year ago, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I am today's years old. And I'm just realizing that the different phases of because you learn that in biology, but no one explains it to you. And it's, it's, it's bizarre. And that's a whole other tangent we're not going to get into. But I just, I want you all to read some of these books. So do you have any other books
1: people should, should check out? No, you actually gave me some really good ones. I was going to say The Body is Not an Apology, but you already named that one. So those were the two that I was coming on with today was Fearing uh, the Black Body and The Body is Not an Apology. Uh, those two are really, really great. Okay.
0: We'll put those in the show notes for y'all to check out. You know, I love books. I love reading. I love spreading that knowledge. The Elisa Vitti book is really dope. She has a whole app. She has a program with recipes, really cool, really cool stuff. Um, and which is so much information for us to learn, but it's, it's doable. It's important. We are important. And the information that we have will be able to help not only ourselves, but those around us, which I think is kind of the gift that keeps on giving. So I, I'm so excited we had this conversation. Is there anything that we didn't? I know people have your Instagram, which I'll repeat. It's at Dr. Ebony online. It's Ebony with a Y online. Please follow her Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, She is Dr. Ebony on TikTok. Look her up, add her on
1: social. What else? Do you have anything you want to talk about that's coming up in the next month or two? I will tell folks if they're really interested in doing some of this self work, some of this insight work, some of this stuff that's getting in their way, that they can pick up the therapy cards at MyTherapyCards.com or MyTherapyCards.shop and they can actually do some work around specifically the food relationship. So you would take the questions and apply them specifically to your food relationship and they work They, they work well. I use them in coaching programs and when I'm doing talks too. So I would say pick that up if you, you're interested. And if you are an entrepreneur who happens to be a therapist or coach and your profession is just kind of helping people out in that realm, then I'm having a coaching program start this fall or the fall of 2022. Where you can come and we can work together around gaining clarity, finding your niche, finding your message so that you can go on to do speaking things like this and help to really solidify your position as an expert. And you can find that out on my website, DrEbony.com. And you can sign up for uh, that via my website or the link in my bio on Instagram. Um, Put your name on the wait list so we can get you more information. Wonderful. Okay, y'all.
0: Well, you heard it right there. Please make sure you're tapped in on social media. Obviously, you know where to find me on Instagram at Whitney, Danielle co underscore hit me up, please. If you're listening, screenshot your phone, your device. Um, if you're in the car, take a pic and tag us on social media. Let us know we are going to do a quick IG live. So you can see Dr. Ebony. If you have ever want to um, see her in, in the full color online, obviously not like in real life, but it will be on Instagram for you all to just engage, ask questions, um, say hello, right? Introduce yourself. Really interactive. We'll do an IG live real quick after the episode has dropped. If you're listening to this in the future, make sure you're supporting the show. You can leave five star reviews or five star ratings and a review on pretty much all the platforms, right? Spotify has a rating uh, bit now where you can rate podcasts, and you know Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. So would appreciate that support. I love seeing you all leave reviews of Network and Spell. With that being said, I am so excited that you made it to the end of this episode. This has been so much fun. We will do a part two at some point in the future. Dr. Ebony, thank you so much for being with us today and taking the time to join me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad. And And y'all listening, you know what to do. We'll see you next time. Take care.